Now, I will not be satisfied until every seat in the House and Senate is filled by a regular person, a regular person who quite reasonably hates being there. I want government to be like jury duty. This is the Just Before President's Day weekend Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz in New York. Elsewhere in New York, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. Is, wait, does that mean it's Monday a holiday? Monday is a holiday. It's President's, it's President's Day. It's the day that we celebrate uh, Abraham Lincoln's birthday, George Washington's birthday, and Grover yeah. Cleveland's illegitimate child. I don't know. Whatever, whatever you want to make up to celebrate President's Day, uh, you got it right there. Wasn't wasn't it Grover Cleveland who either had an illegitimate child or was reputed to have an illegitimate child? Gone to the White House, ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Right. Okay. And in Washington, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hello, John. How are you? Um I'm a carbon-based life form on this planet. That's about all I got for you. Oh man. Terrific. And Rob, and Rob, how are you? I am doing great. I feel I had a very trying week with lots of stuff to do, and I just had a last sort of the meeting that felt very promising and um and i'm doing this new thing now which uh which i'll share with you which is that i i am i have this i have this bad habit of saying okay i'm going to sit down now to write and then sitting down to where I, where what i'm really going to be doing is thinking and sort of arranging things and um so now what i do uh past uh, month has been really helpful is i no i don't i, I take a huge walk and i find that that helps like the physical activity occupies the part of my brain that um, needs to be occupied while the other part is then free to think about, you know, story turns. Um, you know who walked 15 miles a day and was the most productive writer practically who ever oh. lived? Charles Dickens. Really? Charles Dickens wow. was a was a was a was a was an ambulator around London and he would walk wow. 10, 15 miles a day at night. Uh, he went everywhere. He saw everything. It's how he ended up with those, his incredible powers of observation, how sure. he could describe these, you know, areas of London that no other you know, person of his class had ever even laid eyes on. And that was a very big thing. The walk was part of his creative process. In so, yeah, fairness, could, could, like, could, could, could he write, could he write half hour? That's my question. <laughs> anyway. In fairness, like, Late 19th, mid to late 19th century London is probably a really awesome walking city. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Except for the, you know, yeah. Except for the, the squalor. Horse yeah. But like if, if you're writing space. about a, yeah. squalor yeah. plays an important role in a lot of Dickens. <laughs> so it's like true, actually right? seeing it, you know, this is probably valuable. It's true. But if you, if you read Dickens' biographies, I mean, the biographers just make a point of this that he just, yeah, makes sense. Though. He, mean, outwalked, really, uh, he outwalked. He so people. It's he a beautiful was very day. Disappointed in his yeah. children because they couldn't keep up with him. Like uh -huh. he was a very disappointed father, and his children didn't make much of themselves, and he was quite cruel to them. And one of the things that he objected to in them was that they, 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 they couldn't keep up with him on the walk. I'm on his side. Yeah. There you I'm, go. I'm, I'm, I'm hashtag Team Charles. I'm a very <laughs> aggressive walker, and um, um. My wife and daughter call him whenever we go home to New York. They call him, you know, Daddy's Death Marches because I like walking from <laughs> yeah. one end to the other. But you know, in fairness, um, you know, Dickens did have, you know, the best AirPods on the market at the time, <laughs> and you know, that helped a lot. Oh, very, uh, my very, very uh, my much. nephew when he was very young, 
sort of uh, precociously, I think, like inappropriately like young for this, maybe, I don't know, maybe four or five, when my brother and sister-in-law were marching around Europe for some reason, he so suddenly stops his, I, I, I was not aware there was going to be this much walking involved. Was that a four-year-old? Now, of course, he's a he's a strapping sixteen-year-old football playing athlete. But at the time, the walking—even now, people are like, oh, where is this? So you, you say a mile, a mile is like fifteen minutes to walk. It's no, no, no. It's really no distance at all. But you're like, oh, you gonna walk? Like, I think it's just horrible. American children are just horrible. Yeah. So, like, uh, this is a, again, walking is a topic of great conversation in the Goldberg household. Um, I always complain about how. You know, I don't like walking around my neighborhood and and my wife thinks, you know, walking's walking. And for me, like in Paris, New York, London, you get a certain energy from other pedestrians from yeah. just like life of the street kind of thing. And I can walk and people watch and do all that kind of stuff. Really, you know, yeah, I have enormous energy for it. Walking in the sort of boring, quasi suburban neighborhood that I live in, it's just not interesting. And it's one of the main reasons like we talk that I'm sympathetic to the idea of, of selling our house and moving back into the real part of the city. So, Whoa, um, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Okay. So it would crush my daughter if we gave up the house. But right. Uh, Why don't you walk as you walk around the neighborhood? Don't, don't you ever like want to peer in the windows and make up little stories about the people and maybe like catch them? Well, I like going into know, their houses and watch naked. them sleep. Um, right. stealing their underwear that's good yeah, yeah that's so good james elroy moving 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 things around a little on the coffee table just yeah. a little bit just a little bit in the morning they're like james something's elroy a little, something's a little different around yeah here, right no it's, it's, it's funny, you, funny you mentioned this my my wife has got these candies like you know I, I don't know what they're like little chocolates that are you know wrapped at both ends that you uh-huh. sort of pull apart whatever and um yesterday she accused me of eating all of her candies and i was like I have literally not had one of these things. And she's like, well, I haven't eaten them. <laughs> I'm like, well, I haven't eaten them. And so we had this, you know, maybe someone's coming into the house and eating all of the, all of the candy. So, you know, maybe some is... turnabout is fair play. So I, you mentioned the AirPod issue. And right. so uh, as, as I've, as I mentioned on a previous glop, so uh, we now have a dog. And so I go out, we're, we're trying to housebreak the dog. So we take her out like every two hours mm-hmm. So there I am walking in my neighborhood. And of course, I put the AirPods in so I can listen to things like the Remnant or the Ricochet podcast or something or other. And of course, you can't really do that because you're walking along, particularly if it's cold and you have on like a woolen hat or something, people don't know that you have AirPods in. So they come up to you with their dogs and they're like, it's like a Laurel and Hardy. It's like a silent movie. Like suddenly they're talking to you. Their lips are moving. You can't hear anything because I'm hearing Joe's right. voice in my <laughs> ears. And then, you know, the fastest way to deal with this is to pull the one of the AirPods out of your ears, which will immediately kind of silence the podcast. And then you have this awkward moment where the person realizes that you didn't hear the two sentences that were spoken before you pulled the AirPod out. And I'm like, I, I guess I can't really walk around with the AirPods in. Because walking a dog is a much more social activity, right? In a, particularly in a crowded city, than I had really understood beforehand. And I kind of always have to be at the ready to have some banal conversation about how old is your dog? What yeah, let's your dog. You know, have you been to the dog park lately? Right. While the dogs do incredibly doggy things to each other, and the yes. humans pretend not to be embarrassed by them. 
which is like, (laughs) I remember as a joke, I was once sitting somewhere with my dog and um, some young woman was walking by uh, with her dog and the dogs sort of greeted each other as they do. And then my dog just went right and buried his face right in her crotch. (laughs) And I said, I'm I'm sorry, I, I don't know where he learns that. (laughs) <laughs> well the and other then, funny yeah the other one i had was like it was in washington square park it was like two years ago when i had my dog up here and uh um there was some clearly a crazy person crazy not a, not a homeless person i mean a neurotic crazy probably rich resident of the west village with her dog and um her dog obviously as, as they do was sniffing the anal glands of my dog that's kind of what they do i don't know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. i'm sure jonah has a nicer way to put it but i don't and she actually did this to her dog. She actually said this. What, I forget his name. A little dog, like a you know, little Yorkie. Like Yorkie, no Yorkie. Privacy. <laughs> I looked at her like, oh, you're a crazy person. See, I'm, you, I'm you fascinated this, now. Yeah. yeah, I'm fascinated now because, as I said, this is a world that I, I I've only recently yeah. gained into. So you can see sort of like the the person who is walking the dog mad at the world, and the last thing that they are going to allow happen. Is yeah. for their dog to have a social encounter with another dog because it's going to slow them down. They're trying to get the dog ten minutes in, get the you know, g- get the dog to do its business and get back inside so they continue fighting <laughs> with their wife or husband, right. or right. whoever whoever they were fighting when they grabbed the leash and ran out the door. And you can kind of see them coming. And my puppy is like, can spot a dog 150 feet away, and then suddenly will surface freeze and play tail will go up in, yeah. in excitement to get get ready for this dog and this person 75 feet away sees me sees the dog and hauls it over to the far corner of the street and starts walking really fast putting the dog on the far side of right. his or her body so that there can be no social encounter whatsoever and, and you believe that's because of the dog well no i think it's because well, of okay yeah that's what, what it is want the dog. is to just get it over with and not have to say, how are you? What a cute dog, whatever, because they're really angry or, you know, they've got Mm -hmm. thoughts running in their head or something like that. It's just an interesting social experiment in, in, in social dynamics. That's, that's, that's new to me as I enter my seventh decade. So we used to have um, (laughs) a a basset hound at our place in Manhattan and fantastic dog. Love that dog. Norman, Norman T. Bassett. And um, my dad loved walking them because all, all the young women would ooh and ah and say, oh, can I pet your dog? And my dad liked to be able to talk about the dog and all kinds of stuff. And I, I love Norm, but if you've never had a Basset Hound, they are like by breed, by breeding among the most stubborn animals. In They're basically the donkeys of dogs. And Norman would park himself on the corner of 84th and Broadway if an, if, if an insufficient number of people had come up to say hello to him and he would hold court and <laughs> right. demand that people come up and say hello and pay homage to what an awesome bassinati he was. It's like a mob boss. And there were times where I was that guy who just wanted to get the walkover. I was yeah. you know, a young guy and I had things yeah. to do and it's hot. And like, I've had people saying, I'm going to call the cops on you. Because I was trying him. to drag the 75 yeah. pound basset hound who refused to go across. <laughs> and you're like, leave that dog alone. It's like, like, he knows what he's doing. He could get up if he found this so unpleasant. He refused. So my wife, to. the uh, so my wife who also is not a, has not been a, a dog owner previously, uh, 
is both uh, is very proud when people say, oh, my God, she is the cutest dog I've ever seen. Isn't she amazing? You say, Thank you. Like, no, like it's like you so cute. I know. Right. And then they're like, would you mind if I took a picture of her? And then she's like, she says, sure. And then she comes. So she's like, why are they taking a picture of her? Like, why are they taking a picture of our dog? What's they're like going tiger. On? They're like tiger. Uh, dog parents they're going to go home and show that picture of their dog see why aren't you more like this dog but it's sort of like why are you taking a picture of a dog that is somebody else's yeah. dog on well, the street take it to the groomer really they make, make my dog look like this i don't know if you've you may not be aware but i from time to time take pictures of my dogs and post them on twitter really and but they're your really yes yes and, no and, and um the I one of the weird like, in portrait as mode as I, as I can i just yeah, say enjoy, not just a picture treats. He takes the picture in portrait mode. That spaniel <laughs> is in soft focus. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that's you can tell. It's, uh, it's got only the light. nose that really comes in. Yeah, sharp. It's, it's, it's the ring, it's the ring light, I think, is really yeah. the important thing. The yeah. personalized ring light for, yeah. for each of the for but each of the dogs. I, I will tell you, uh, there's it's a remarkably strange sensation to be driving your 15 year old beat up Honda Element dog car down MacArthur Boulevard and, and you stop at a red light. And another car pulls alongside of you and they yell out their window. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Pippa. <laughs> and don't say a word to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. They don't like you. Um, I was once walking my dog, my, uh, um, my first dog that I owned, who was this g- gorgeous lab uh, shepherd mix. He was like a real prince of a dog. Um, and it was a Saturday morning and I was walking the dog. Uh, down Lincoln Boulevard in uh, in Venice. So it's kind of a busy street. And it was early Saturday morning. It's like 930, 10 o'clock. And for some reason, I'd gone past where I used to go to Lincoln. And this dog could range. You know, he loved to walk. And uh, and I, was, I had my little backpack on with my newspaper. And I was wearing a grimy T-shirt and shorts and like flip-flops. So I looked kind of homeless. Um, and I'm walking down with my little backpack, which has some water in it, and my newspaper and the dog and then the scoops, you know, the little plastic things to for the scoop of the dog's poop. And a car slowed down next to me. And then came and you know that weird feeling when you realize that okay, someone someone wants to talk to you. And I just stopped. Like I looked in and there's this woman there, kind of like a kind of a raggedy looking woman. And she rolls down the window and she's wearing a a, a dirty Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. And this is like an old car. I don't know what kind of car this was, like a B double car. And she says, hey, how's it going to me? I said, fine, thanks. I think, I think oh, my, do I, do I know this person? Is this like, I, I know I know, I look crappy on a Saturday morning, so maybe that's why she does too, and she's somebody. I'm like, oh, great, great, thanks, yeah, great. And then there's this awkward pause, and I was hoping she would say like something that I would then be able to place her. And then she said, do you party? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, no, no, thanks. I mean, I, I didn't. I should have followed up on it, but I, and then she should have drove away. And I'm like, wait, wait, what happened there? Was this person soliciting me? I mean, is that how far it's gone? That like, if you have to ask yourself, what, what who was the buyer and who was the seller? You know, these are two very unattractive people. <laughs> and I what and and what about the dog? Like, I guess she just thought I was a homeless person who was available. I don't. So anyway, she wanted was, to take you home, yeah, and then lock you in her garage and perform experiments on you. Right, right. 
Well, or I mean, like, the most dangerous, then say that. You know what? Then say that. Open with that. Like that. Don't make and, me have to. What am I, Kreskin? Don't make that, me have to read your mind. And that woman today is Diane Feinstein. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she wasn't that old. Oh well. I well, mean, you said this was a while ago, so I, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, even then, yes, it wasn't a one hundred years ago. So uh, we are making uh, we are making merry and making light. And I have to say that I'm not in a particularly merry or light mood this week because of because of the sudden and unexpected loss of PJ Rourke, who is one of my oldest friends. And I know is somebody you guys knew as well, but I've known PJ since the uh, mid 80s and uh, and uh, uh, was delightfully and happily very much back in touch with him over the last three or four years because he was running this magazine that I wrote for called American Consequences, an online magazine. And so having been his editor at the Weekly Standard for a while and having helped helped him with a couple of his books uh, as an editor, like in the early going, you know, suddenly he was my editor and it was a sort of delightful switch in, 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 in place. And um, I just... Uh, you know this, uh, coupled with uh, deaths uh, five or six weeks ago of of, of Terry Teachout, um, who uh, you know wrote every month for commentary. Like I, I don't know what's what, what's happening here, but it's twenty twenty two is shaping up to be a pretty terrible year uh, unless uh, unless things change, unless the, the 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 pace of these losses starts to slow down. I mean Terry was Terry was sixty five, PJ was seventy four. Uh, both of them it sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, anybody, uh, Rob, you uh, you described him on Twitter in, in a very interesting way because you said he was sneaky smart. Yeah, um, I think that's that's true for a lot of people who write, you know, who who people call humorists, right? Like, like oh, it's funny that they they if they're really good ones are sneaky and um, like I think Parliament of Horrors, which is I think pretty much his, I'm not his masterpiece, but a a significant piece of American political writing. Um, it's just right up there with all of the greats that we think about people who it, he wrote from principle. Um, I mean, he was funny and he would, I mean, he would never not tell the joke, go for the joke, but he had a set of principles that were in his writing, which I thought were really, that's why I thought he was a genius. That's why I remember reading the funny stuff he was doing in the, in the seventies as a kid for national lampoon, the Sunday newspaper parody is, um, you know, a masterpiece, a work of, of comic art. It's genius. Every page of it is genius. Uh, and I remember uh, I lost my copy and I had to buy one. I mean, this is not maybe 15 years ago on eBay. I bought one on eBay because um, I needed to have it. Uh, and it always rewards you. It's so dense with jokes. Um, but then even in, but then in the 80s and the 90s, when he was writing um, reporting, he was doing real reporting, uh, funny reporting, but real reporting. Um, and then writing about American politics and American culture, funny, but real. Um, there's just something about it. I thought was just um, singular genius. I mean, and, and inspiring. Like, it's like, I remember meeting him for the first time. Um, uh, and I mean, I was, already, I was like already, a, I had a career. I think it was in the early nineties. They met him like maybe in 91, 92. I was, I was like, I, you know, I had a career. I like, I was, on t- I had running a TV show and I still felt myself like, oh, shit, that's P.J. O'Rourke. I'm meeting P.J. O'Rourke. I mean, and I, I still felt that way even years later when I would see him around and I bump into him in places or we did a I mean, I contributed to a bunch of these Templeton books with him and, and then did events with him. And 
I still felt this like, oh, wow, that's the president of the club that I'm a member of, but he's the president. So the only TV show of Rob's that I ever reviewed, I don't even know if you remember this. Was it a good review? Or was bad a TV, review? It was a good review. Huh. I was a that TV I... critic of the New York Post for 15 months, and I reviewed a show of yours, which was on the WB or whatever. Oh, UPN. Yeah. Pigsty called yeah. Pigsty. Yeah, it was a good show. And I never show. asked so you for a show. You know, it was a fun show. Yeah. And there was a character on there named PJ. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I think I noted in my review because uh, I said, oh, you know, Rob Long, one of the creators of the show writes for conservative publications because I think you'd already started to write your column for National Review at that. Oh, point. So you're the one who ruined my career. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I said, this character must have been named after PJ O'Rourke. Was that? Well, yeah, I, I kind of what we uh, uh, in the lore of the series, which I guess you didn't continue to, to watch. But in the lore of the series, he was this really rich kid. He was a kid. It was like a he was an early woke character uh, and he didn't have a job. And his name was Philip and his last name was Morris. And he, he was always hiding the fact that he was <laughs> came from this gigantic tobacco company, the tobacco family. Um, uh, in fact, I think at one point we had his, he met his dad who he was very estranged to estranged by um, because he was dad who had all this tobacco money he hated. Um, and his father said, no, listen, we're, you know, we're going to go broke. We've been sued. Apparently you're not allowed to advertise your product anymore for, for, you know, you're, it's not America anymore. We're in trouble. Cause they, they had a, they were running an ad for children's cigarettes called little tokes for little smokes or little smokes for little, t- I forget what it was. Um, and uh, and and so that's when the reveal. So we had to come up with a way to hide his name. And PJ seemed like oh, the way to do it. Okay. But, you know, it was definitely ambient. It was ambient. Yeah. I mean, because he was the only PJ I, I ever I ever met. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Sunday newspaper parody. And there was, of course, there was also for people of a certain age. I think what predated the Sunday newspaper yeah. parody was the high school yearbook parody. It's it's set in the same town, Dacron, right. Ohio. The Dacron, Ohio, and the yeah the <laughs> son, the D- Dacron, Ohio. Oddly, interestingly enough, um, uh, many of the photographs for the high school yearbook parody were taken at my high school, uh, really? Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School, because uh, the publisher of National Lampoon, Maddie Simmons, his son Andy, who was one of my closest friends. Um, went to went to Columbia Grammar, and so you know the National Lampoon was in was in Manhattan, and so they kind of chose CGPS to be the place that they they took the pictures. Uh, PJ uh, was was a teacher as a, was a was a sort of like a, a high school fa- a female high school teacher in some of these photographs. But you know it's interesting because when he did this, those are two I said in my column about this that I, I considered. I think those are the two greatest works of parody oh. ever produced in the United States. Very cool. Yeah, I, I, I would not disagree. I mean, the um, Sunday newspaper, parody, but it's also so dense. Right. It's and so is the high school yearbook. Yeah, yeah, there was like there wasn't an inch of space in either. And the Sunday newspaper yeah. was the size and length of a small town Sunday. It included newspaper. it had it six included sections. It had comics. comics. Yeah, it had it a great peanut classifieds. Parody. It even had everything it, in it was yeah. written. Every and nothing. Yeah. There were no ads. Even there were no through nothing. it written. Well, even through the was the 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 news page was covered. One of the news stories was covering the series of attacks 
in uh, in um, in gas station bathrooms. They called the powder room prowler. And if you read the whole thing, you realize the powder room prowler. You had to put the clues together was the son of the publisher of the Dacron Republican Democrat newspaper. He was like the, the rich kid. And it was great. Like, and I remember like being, I think it was 11 or something, reading and thinking, oh my God, I knew who the powder room prowler was. Like, he was so yeah. thought out and, and uh, fantastic and affectionate. Right. And it was great. I mean, he, so he, imagine you're that guy. You're this young guy from Toledo. You come to New York. You're not a Harvard puke like the other people on the staff. You went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins. You come to New York. You get this job on National Lampoon. And you are the only straight arrow like, you know, PJ did drugs and he did this and that. But he showed up at the office in a, in a, in a, in a tie and like he was in, interested in making sure that they met deadlines. And Maddie ev eventually made him the editor because everybody else was so strung out <laughs> on drugs that he couldn't right. rely on people to turn the magazine out every month. And there was PJ and PJ created, incepted and edited those two parodies. And this was all done by the time he was, I don't know, 30 or, you know, in his early 30s. And then, like everybody else in that world, when National Lampoon's Animal House hit, he went out to Hollywood to make his fortune. And he started writing in Hollywood. And um, uh, he got one credit, which was on Easy Money, the Rodney Dangerfield movie. But he, he told me once, he wrote for four years, he made a million dollars a year, got nothing produced, and his soul, he was dying. <laughs> he, really? was di he was rich and he was dying. And it was at that moment that somehow somebody got the idea of sending him on this Nation magazine Volga River boat cruise. Brilliant. Which, if you have not read this, read yeah. it. It's in Holidays in Hell. It is in Holidays in Hell. It's really wonderful. And that was the moment that changed his yeah. life. Yeah. And he was like, I'm not staying in Hollywood. I'm not doing this anymore. This is who I am. Right. He'd already had this wildly successful career as a comedy writer as a sort of inspiration having done you know you couldn't do better he couldn't have improved upon what he had already produced he had been the editor of the hottest comedy magazine ever created in the country he had created these two things and he'd make it made a fortune in hollywood even if he hadn't really made it as a as a successful credited screenwriter and then he found himself then suddenly yeah, right. in his mid-30s he becomes this other person it's a great life. And he was just open I, to experience. Yeah. And everybody liked him. But I think he, yeah. I like, I'm just talking about his, oh, sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, like, I, I, I was not the student of his move that you guys were in part because I was a little younger than you. Um, and I still am. Nice. Nicely, uh, nice, nicely but, couched in a, in, a, in a fine remembrance. But the thing is, you know, I, I have a certain amount of frustration with the um, so much of the sort of coverage of him as I don't want to put this. He was a very funny guy, right? He was supremely, he was one of the greatest. I think you're absolutely right. One of the greatest satirists of American history. He was also crazy, wicked smart. And in some ways to me, he was a cautionary tale for me because um, there was a brief time when like, my speakers bureau and other people were and NR were leaning on me heavily to be like Generation X's PJ O'Rourke because I could write funny. The problem was, was that like writing a lot and consistently funny is exhausting and really, really hard. And um, and PJ could do it. Rob can do it. Um, but like 
um, PJ combined it with reporting and doing all of these things. Right. And the, one of the, by almost by definition being funny, it makes it look easy because it, by def, by, because it's funny, it's accessible yeah, to people. Right, right. But it's actually really, really hard. And um, I remember feeling like I cannot make a career out of doing this. And because I could not sustain that level of quality of making jokes constantly the way he could. And also, but I always was very frustrated about PJ because like if he hadn't been a humorist, he would qualify as a very prominent public intellectual because he was legitimately smart, but people had this expectation of him of he's just going to make me laugh. And I remember at one point he tried some very serious writing in the Atlantic in the mid nineties. I think it was about Iwo Jima or something like that. And I remember feeling the exact same way I felt when uh, Bill Murray did what was the mock? It was like the razor's razor's edge. edge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember watching that and just, there was something about Bill Murray's face that you watch him in that. And I felt like Homer Simpson watching, you know, the Garrison Keillor show saying stupid TV, be more funny because he just (laughs) wanted Bill Murray to be funny. And when you're when I read PJ as a serious guy, your your brain expected humorous cadences and they weren't there and it was frustrating. And and so like my frustration about the way he's been talked about is that, yeah, he was really, really funny. But like there's a reason why he was made like the Mencken fellow at Cato, because Mencken is another one of those kinds of writers who could speak in two voices and people don't appreciate that 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 PJ's stuff was really philosophically really well grounded and informed yeah. in ways that if you took the jokes out would be just seen as like very serious stuff. Um, but like uh, Rob, you were there, right? When we did the, 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 the deadly virtues, right. 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 Book event. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I, I'd had a drink or two with PJ a few times huh? before and getting yeah. a compliment from PJ work is like one of those people that you're like, Oh yeah. my gosh, I right. got a compliment. Right. But, um, it was a like you, me, Matt Labash, and PJ went and invaded the offices of the Standard and <laughs> yeah, right. drank a good deal of liquor. <laughs> we did. Um, we did. I always think about that night in a way as like you know in Ocean's Eleven where where um, George Clooney says, you know, if you sh- I think it's eleven, but it might be thirteen. Doesn't matter. Where Clooney says, if you shook Sinatra's hand, there's sort yeah. of like a sp- Right. There's a certain code. Yeah. Right? These right. If you got drunk with PJ or Rourke, you know, <laughs> right. there's, it's just like it's sort of this, one of these initiation things that is, I can't put it on a resume, but it's like, you know, it was a real sort of bucket list thing for me. Yeah, I remember that. I remember I remember I remember thinking that, oh, wow, this is like really happening. This is the thing yeah. that I guess what I, that's sort of what I meant when I said sneaky smart was that there was the. There, there aren't that many books about American politics and culture that are smarter than Parliament of Horrors. There are also aren't that many that have a, a kind of a moving detour into his real life. There's a part of that book where he goes through, he goes to his attic. He's a, 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 a single mom. He had a single mom and they were broke a lot. And then he sort of reconstructed just how broke they were uh, in, and which is something he was not aware of as growing up. And it's a really powerful chapter. It's funny, but it stings. And he realizes, boy, they we came really close to losing the house. They came really close. They qualified for federal assistance, but they didn't take it. And he said, well, that's that's that was our that's how we got out of poverty is that we didn't have help. 
um, and that was really powerful writing. And it wasn't funny, but it was personal. And I think that's what he wrote. He wrote the truth and he wrote it. Um, it was uh, not incidentally funny because he, he did try to put jokes in there, but it it never seemed like it wasn't his mm-hmm. true belief. I mean, I, I will say this real, real research. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about him is that as a funny writer and people did find him very yeah. funny, he was actually a moralist. Like his, his right. main right. Over, o- overarching message is uh, people are to be trusted and uh, large organizations that seek to control them are not to be trusted. Right. Um, and, uh, and America is a pretty, uh, pretty goddamn great place and people shouldn't run it down so readily. And uh, he, you know, one of the uh, passages, I think Matt, Matt Labash uh, quotes in, in his really beautiful uh, appreciation of him that's on his Substack today is something where his daughter says to PJ, it's not fair. Life's not fair. People, I don't know, some people have money and some people don't have money. And he says, I said to her, honey, you were born in the United States of America. That's not fair. You got an advantage that most people on this planet right. don't get. You mm-hmm. better reconcile yourself to it. That's what good luck is. And that's what it means to be appreciative. That's really who he was. And right. he was a quite earnest person yeah. in person. He was not like, there are people who are like effortlessly funny. You just sit around and they crack jokes and they're really funny. PJ was actually quite earnest and, and, and very serious in conversation and wanted to, I mean, he was full of laughter and he laughed a lot. He laughed at a lot of the own things he himself said, but, um, but he was interested in having, you know, detailed, serious policy conversations and things like that and talking about what was going on that was bad and wrong and, and what was wrong with this and what was wrong with that. He wasn't, you know, you know, it wasn't but, like you were sitting around with Mel Brooks right. and, yeah. and, and, and he was, you know, riffing yeah. on, on, on stuff that that wasn't who he was. And he was really fundamentally a moralist. It's probably one of the reasons that, you know, he he could make those parodies because um, they are brilliant and they are full of amusement at American banality, but they are not hostile. No, no. I mean, they're they're, I would say two hostile. things. One, they're loving, not yeah. hostile. One of the reasons I think he was so good was because he was from Toledo, Ohio, and he was surrounded, uh, it's certainly National Lampoon, with a bunch of, you know, Harvard, Ivy League people who didn't, who scorned that. He had a really authentic voice and he was surrounded by people who didn't. And that that helped. But I, I wonder what that, what does that mean though? Because I, I, I feel the same way as Jonah does sometimes. I mean, I, mean, I feel differently from Jonah because Jonah has written, um, you know, long, thoughtful, uh, well-researched books and I, <laughs> that I, I could not possibly do um but there is this attitude that like if you're if you're if you write humor that like you, you there's a metronome in your head sometimes going like oh oh damn this is a paragraph without a joke i gotta like i gotta redo mm-hmm. this paragraph or like i and a fear that you're boring people um and that their expectations are high and uh, and then i think that so for some people it's just like well you're a comedian and you think, well, I'm not really a comedian. I mean, I don't write, I can't write jokes for people that aren't me. I can only write things that I would say that I think are funny. Um, and that that is also one of these struggles you have. I have like I, one of the things that happens like when people, something like that dies, um, in addition to like mourning the person that was your friend and that you liked very much, 
um, is this idea that, damn, that was the, I, I, I wanted to have that job. I wanted Anthony Bourdain died. I thought some person I'd met once, but I thought, man, that's the job I wanted. There's and with also, PG work, I'm like, that's the job I wanted to, to send me somewhere, pay my expenses. Right. <laughs> PJ, like he, he knew what you were paying him. Um, and I let me let me do that because I would love to do that. But he did it so well and so thoroughly. His reporting is so powerfully funny and real. It really is. It's literature. There's also just one point that I think is worth mentioning because everyone's talk again, talk so much about how funny he was. Um, he's very similar to William F. Buckley in a, in a particular sense, which is that you, and you see it on Twitter. All these people who said, oh, I was in college and I drove him to a speech or. I was doing an event and I was the one setting up the chairs or whatever, that kind of stuff. He was a nice guy. Yeah. You know, like to normal to people that in the the way the sociology of Washington or journalism did not require him to be a good guy to. He was a good guy from Toledo and he yeah. was pleasant to be around and he was he respected other people. He didn't put on, you know, crazy airs or anything like that. And he listened to people. He had conversations with with people that he didn't need to waste time, according to the BS standards of, of D.C., because he, he was a mensch. Look, it is very important to point out. You pointed out he's from Toledo. The writer whom he most resembles or that I think he would have wanted to think that he most resembled wasn't Mencken. And it wasn't Hunter Thompson, though. He had some, you know, he he but was Tom Wolf. And there there are yeah. many some Tom Wolf was a mm -hmm. guy from, you know, Southern Virginia who came to the big city and he was always an outsider. He was he had the freshest, clearest, most sociologically accurate eye of anybody who who observed the goings on uh, in the United States and in the workings of the upper reaches of, of, of American culture and American society. But he was a man apart because he had come from elsewhere. And so much of uh, fresh, uh, serious, uh, original thinking about our country and all this, it comes from those people. And as we now enter into our like third generation of um, Harvard people running everything <laughs> from Hollywood yeah. to university right. to government to television to newspapers to you know every sort of uh, commanding height of society, um, we are very much at risk of losing these voices that come out of nowhere and can tell us what is wrong with those people. And that was the funny thing is that, uh, as he said to me, um, upon the passing of Maddie Simmons, the guy at the who himself was a kid from the Bronx uh, who had been a press agent before he started National Lampoon. As he said, you know, Maddie gave me a shot uh, when everybody else at the Lampoon was Harvarder than thou. Harvarder than thou, right? <laughs> Harvarder than thou. And, you know, I, I just don't know where those, you know, where those voices well, are necessarily going to come from because I think that the worst one yeah. is closing. I think the worst part of it is that the, there are now people who are, are, are anti Harvarder than thou who themselves went to Harvard. Like, right, right. I'm a man of the people, says the Ted Cruz. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, not Harvard. that Ted Cruz went to Harvard, but or J.D. Vance. So I guess went oh, wait, to he did go to Harvard. He, he went to Princeton, I think. Ted Cruz. He went, he went to, to Harvard. Ted law? went to Princeton undergrad and Harvard Law. Harvard Law. Okay. Yeah. yeah, right. Or yeah. like I'm even not um, one of those Harvard. I'm not one of those guy, eggheads. Yeah. I mean, Josh yeah. Hawley, you know, like yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Ron DeSantis. I mean, like, yeah, the, the idea of like of, of now being anti Harvard. Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo. Right. And West Point. too. 
He yeah. was like number um, one in his class. All right. Okay. So Scott is going crazy. So I got to tell you guys, yeah, I now have to go to the kind of ad that would really have made PJ happy and would make PJ happy to know that I'm reading this right after uh, speaking about is him in such reverent poo? terms. When it comes to men's underwear, Tommy <laughs> John's hammock pouch underwear is the full package deal. <laughs> I, can, I can assure you that's Tommy true. John's hammock pouch underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're never going back. Innovations like an air mesh interior hammock and moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands plus the legs never ride up in Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics who, after 13 years and tens of thousands of five-star reviews, call Tommy John the most comfortable boxer briefs ever. With over 17 million pairs sold, men across America love their Tommy John underwear. Shipping and returns are free because every pair is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash glop. Go to TommyJohn.com slash glop today for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash glop. See site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring the glop podcast. It is a, a horrible coincidence that just a couple of days before PJ died uh, came the sudden death of Ivan Reitman. Uh, it's a horrible coincidence because Ivan Reitman made his fortune and and made his career as one of the two producers of National Lampoon's Animal House, which, of course, brought the National Lampoon brand into sort of legendary status in 1978 when the movie came out. and was the most successful R-rated comedy ever made up to that moment and completely revolutionized American movie making for not only just two two generations afterward, but pretty much forever uh, in inventing every trope that we can imagine, you know, re revitalizing the frat, which was a sort of dead institution, um, the campus comedy, the teen comedy, the raunchy comedy, all that stuff that really sort of uh, uh, sprung from that. And the reason you know that Ivan Reitman was kind of like the genius of this is that unlike my my my, uh, my friend's father, Maddie Simmons, who really made National Lampoon's vacation and then really didn't go much of anywhere, Ivan Ryman then went from strength to strength. He took Bill Murray. He made him a movie star in Meatballs, which uh, was the extension of the National Lampoon's Animal House brand as a comedy about ra Randy Raunchy teens at a summer camp. And then Stripes, which is Randy Raunchy 20-somethings, 20, 20 uh, who learn how to be real men by being forced to learn discipline um, in the, uh, you know, in the U.S. military. Reitman himself, a refugee from Czechoslovakia, uh, Harold Ramis, who was one of the stars and one of the writers of Stripes, once very dismissively, uh, you know, he made dismissive comments about the end of Stripes, which, if you'll remember, involves this uh, a bunch of people who have gone through basic training in the first half invading Czechoslovakia to save to save their drill sergeant, uh, leaving West Germany, driving into Czechoslovakia, and like you know, essentially, you know, maybe triggering a world war in order to get in order to get their drill sergeant out of uh, or how, this drill well, sergeant, how, yeah, but not the drill sergeant, principle. yeah, right, okay. Anyway, but a bunch of members of the but, but yeah. So uh, <laughs> Harold Ramis said, "Yeah, that was just Ivan being his anti-communist self." So no matter that Rob has stories to tell about how terrible Ivan Reitman is, the fact that he made an anti-communist movie in Hollywood 
1981, where it was like, we zip in, we zip out. It's just like Wisconsin. I will never, ne- I will always love him for that and for the condemnation of Harold Ramis because he didn't like the fact that the movie was, you know, an expression of the devout anti-communism of Ivan Reitman. Anyway, uh, right, right, went on to make Ghostbusters, the most successful comedy ever made up to that time, and and so on. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, he he, he was. I mean, I, I don't I don't quibble with the work or even with the anti-communism. I'm right behind it. He he was famous. I mean, he was extremely successful. He's a good. He's a very good cautionary tale because he was extremely successful, but he had a period where he. Um, he was not only not successful, but he was uh, uh, universally kind of loathed. He had could have created a very sort of toxic cloud around him. Universal built a building basically for him um, on the lot. It was it, it was the Ivan Reitman building, and um, and that was the beginning of his implosion. Um, sort of like a classic case of like the minute you, you they give you the building, it all starts to fall apart. Um, and eventually he had to leave the building. He, he went somewhere else. I don't know if he went into the studio. He just went home. And that building went to another director who was also kind of like on the way up and done some big hits and had a very unique style. That was Tom Shadiak. And I remember walking into the building and Shadiak saying, because we were doing a project with him once, saying like, yeah, this building's cursed. You know, every director who gets this building ends up, uh, you know, alienating everybody and putting on a lot of hits and like going crazy and being universally despised, which is exactly what happened to Tom Shadiak. Um, and then he had to come back somehow. I don't know if he's done it. I don't quite know what, what's up with Tom Shadiak today. Uh, there's a documentary he made about himself. Um, but Ivan Reitman kind of, I think, I don't know this for a fact, but I think Ivan Reitman kind of figured out a way to um, change that around near, uh, uh, near the end of his life. Um, in the last few years, not only being a better producer, being a producer at all, but um, I think just sort of healing whatever the rifts were and just sort of generally being a nicer guy, which the, the it's a cautionary tale, but it's also sort of a happy ending because I think it, what it shows you is that um, you're not trapped in people in Hollywood feel like they're trapped in a certain persona. Like there's no way a guy like Scott Rudin um, could ever not be the monster that he is. He just doesn't have the tools or he thinks he can't. But the people like Ivan Reitman can show you that, that it's maybe there's a way out. So I, I, I don't want to steer us too far afield from the Reitman retrospective stuff, but I, I do have a question, but I'm kind of curious what your theories are. are. The National Lampoon brand, right? So we're, we're bridging right. the PJ conversation and the Reitman conversation. The National Lampoon brand it's still like a recognizable brand today. And as far yeah. as I can tell, it is based entirely on the success of two movies, Animal House and the first vacation movie, right? Maybe the, the other third, movies... maybe the third, the third, the Christmas vacation is sort of like a oh, yeah, now is now okay, a perennial so... is now an annual yeah. classic. But I only know this from scanning cable at weird hours Mm -hmm. that there are, in fact, a lot of National Lampoon movies and they're all garbage. There's a reason there's this is very interesting and very boring. Well, Van Wilder was a huge hit. Right. Was it a huge hit? It was was a a slow building huge hit. I I, I hear you, but it was a hit. Right. Here's the story with National Lampoon. When Maddie Simmons decided he wanted to do this humor magazine and he decided that he wanted the word lampoon because of the Harvard lampoon, 
he made a disastrous decision. His he wrote a he wrote a memoir uh, that goes into this in detail. He goes into negotiations. He himself had worked at Diners Club. He helped start Diners Club. He had been a very successful Broadway press agent, but he wasn't that canny a businessman as it turned out. And he went to the lampoon and said, I want to use the word lampoon. Now, he could have just done it. He could have just yeah. done it. They could have sued him. They would have settled. But he decided he didn't want to do it that way. He was going to do it above board. And he went to the lampoon. And they were really, really, really difficult in negotiations and said, you can't have the word. We invented it. We own it. It's our title. The truth is you can't actually copyright titles. Uh, you can copyright logos, and you can, but you can't copyright titles. Nonetheless, he had entered into these negotiations and he had to see them through. And as a result, in perpetuity, anything that is referred to as National Lampoon must give half of its profits, either half of its profits or half of its gross, in perpetuity forever to the Harvard Lampoon. Half. I'm glad I asked this. So as a result, it is a garbage property because once it fell into disrepair, a lot of people said, I'm going to buy yeah. it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to revitalize it. A lot of people it. did do it. It did. Right. That happened. Many I'm going to revitalize it. And then it turns out that 50% of all that you do, you got to give to this crapola institution in Cambridge, Massachusetts that puts out a lousy humor magazine, but that, but that whose, whose editors and business people in 1971 <laughs> made this absolutely fantastic deal that remains in effect. And 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 so um, well, yeah. Tim but Matheson yeah. bought it. You remember Otter? Yeah. yeah. With great mm -hmm. fanfare, Tim Matheson bought it. There, there are magazines like this. A Saturday Review magazine, which was also like an incredibly successful brand, had done this thing where they had sold perpetual subscriptions. They had sold like a million perpetual subscriptions, which meant that anybody who wanted to revive Saturday Review according to the terms of whatever had to mail out a million copies a month of the magazine <laughs> to these people for who had, who had for free. Right. And so well, therefore it was not a viable, it could never be a viable brand again. I, I've seen That's some the of the, story. The, 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 I've seen some of the national lampoon decks, right? And I know somebody who was the who ran it as the, I think is the most recent person to run it. Um, and they all sort of factor this in, but they all they all say this. There's always a slide in these decks that is the <laughs> the, the secret problem. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not so much you have to split the money because what you what you need are hits. And if you have a hit, it's OK, right, because you can then you can multiplex it on and you can do. other. So there's always a slide that says, well, with all of this and all the new personnel, we're going to have big hits. And then you go to the next slide very quickly about, about something else. But you mean, like, wait, go back to that one slide that you went past the, the slide about the hits. Like, how how is that going to happen? Like, well, you know, obviously the new company will be recapitalized. A lot of creatives and blah, 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 this guy did this. And, this and the, the idea is just like, what if it doesn't happen? Mm -hmm. like, what if you yeah. what if you need five more years, which is actually traditional? What if you do 10 projects and nine of them are disasters, but one of them is a hit. But that one just happens to come at the end after the creditors have taken back the office furniture <laughs> like that. Right. The, the, but the, but they still but I've seen the number like the the if there's any if there's data that you believe, yeah. I've seen the data that says, oh, this is a really, really powerful brand. Yeah. It's really meaningful. All this stuff is kind of true. Right. But it's it's um, you know, for instance, just this week. When I, when I started in show business in 1990, I worked for Paramount 
Pictures, which was a Gulf and Western company. And at the bottom of my stationery, it said Paramount Pictures, a Gulf and Western company. And then they said, well, we're not really Gulf and Western anymore. We're Paramount Communications. And so they took the Gulf and Western out. And then I was working there for a long time. And then suddenly Sumner Redstone bought it. It's called, no, it's Viacom. It's Viacom, he said. So it was Paramount Studios, a Viacom company. And then he bought CBS. And then Paramount became a subsidiary of CBS and Viacom. Then he split those two things in part. So there was a Viacom and then there was a Paramount or CBS. And and Viacom Paramount didn't exist. And then he then his daughter took over and then she said, I'm going to recombine these companies back into Viacom CBS, which was classic corporate logo Viacom CBS, all, all like one word. There was no spaces in there. And then you know, two days ago or three days ago, she and Bob Bakish, who run it, announced with great fanfare. They made a little movie of themselves driving a cartoon car. It, it, forget Viacom, forget CBS It's all Paramount now. We're paramount. And people reported this as if, oh, wow, this is what a brilliant innovation. It is exactly the same damn company. Like they just, but they went and they, they, they hired somebody who said, well, there's more value in the Paramount brand than there is in the Viacom brand or the CBS brand. It, That's a fascinating right. story because, of course, Paramount is a hundred year old brand started yeah. by Adolf Zucker. But does anybody care? 1920. No, but what's interesting is this is where the National Lampoon thing is right and wrong. Like if you made a movie, if you had a script that was an incredible script and 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 you cast it with all unknowns and you had a new director, but it was a fantastic. It was it was like a new Farrelly. brother. it was like there's something about Mary, but, it you know, and you could add the words National Lampoon to it. And that could help you. You know, right. like give it a little zets right at the beginning. Yeah. So you're like, it's a new national. <laughs> we need a zets. Give me a zets. Right. right? Yeah. Um, that would be valuable. Yeah. Right. As long as you didn't have to give 50 percent of the profits to the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah. So it's not valuable anymore. These brands, when you have a powerful brand, it is of inestimable value. And then it turns out, well, you can estimate the value because of what happened with this negotiation between Maddie Simmons and, and right. National Lampoon, and it's too expensive. I was just reading a book. I know, I my weird tastes in reading. I was reading a memoir by a guy named Barney Rosenzweig. Barney Rosenzweig's great oh God. creation was Cagney and Lacey. He, he's and, the um, husband of Sharon of Glass. Sharon you know? Glass. It is a very interesting. We wrote it in 2007, and it's sort of it's the story. It's not a romantic. It's not, too, it's not a, a real no. romantic partnership, is it? He left his wife for her. He had a, like a successful man. They've been they've been together for 30 really? years. So interesting. I don't know. Anyway, that but that's not. So I hear it is different a story. Okay. <laughs> it is a story <laughs> about um, his weirdly checkered career and how at the age of like 47 or 48, he kind of stumbled into creating a massively successful television show, except that it didn't make him really rich. It made him he made a lot of money and that was fine. But a guy like him, he never ended up in the kind of position of these ultra successful showrunners like yeah. like Bochco or David, it whatever. Yeah. Never happened because at some point in his mid 30s or something like that, he went into partnership with a guy named Mace Newfeld and they signed various papers together. And as a result, Mace Newfeld made ha everything that he made, he had to give half of to Mace <laughs> Newfeld forever. And so, and in the classic huh. disincentive structure of life, 
he didn't want to do work on a lot. Yeah, why of get things. out of bed? Yeah, and the other, and, he and, didn't and, want and to and give they, Mace any. According more money. to you, the half that he kept, he had to give half of that to his ex-wife. <laughs> right, his ex-wife Barbara Corday, right. whom he left for Sharon Glass. Anyway, it's an interesting story because it sort of it reminds you there are yeah. all these Hollywood stories. I don't know; it's only Hollywood I know about, but like these firms that like explode outward Vestron video or mm -hmm. this or that. And it turns out like at the beginning when they were really struggling, they got some investor, right? Then the investor gave them the money they needed to make payroll that week. Right. And the invest and they're struggling and they're desperate and they sell off half the company to just make payroll that week. And then the next week, dirty dancing comes out and makes $500 million <laughs> right, right. and Vestron gets nothing. Vestron gets nothing. Well, that is old. The company right. for a mess of pottage, you know. But okay, they did that, but I, no, I guess it's fine. Say, and then but, they and then they produce right, but I, and they most, go out of business. Right, but most most deals that I've been part of, most sort of business affairs wrangling stuff like that, I've been part of. I mean, usually on the other, more more often on the other side of it, right? Uh, the 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 frantic thing they're trying to avoid is the disaster in Hollywood. Is if this thing is a success, right? <laughs> if this thing is a success, we're all screwed because everyone's going to know I wasn't in on it, right? And everyone's going to and everyone's going to get mad and everyone's going to sue each other. The best thing to do is for it just to not do well, and everybody gets paid what they got paid, and they move on. But I, I've had like arguments with people about what? Well, what if? Why am I going to give away a half a point? Because if I give away a half a point, then this thing's a big hit, and people will fight <laughs> over half a point of a show. And I'm like, I got news for you. This thing's never going to see the light of day. You just close and get your money. Don't walk away from them. But the the everyone in Hollywood is their their job is to make sure that this disastrous thing that happens doesn't happen. And if it does happen, that you're fully papered. Right. <laughs> so people will fight to the death over mythical profits on a mythical project that hasn't even been cast yet hasn't even necessarily been given a green light yet may or may not go and if goes may or may not be a, get, go to a second season if it does may not go to a fourth season and even if it does may not sell in a syndication may not have, an, have a have a back end at all but people like i the my nightmare is that i'm on a success <laughs> and all i have to show for it is a million dollars Anyway, that's the that that is why this Barney Rosenzweig book is is it because it is a cautionary tale about a guy <laughs> who did basically okay. decided he wasn't going to work anymore after Cagney and Lacey, because what was the point? He'd a he'd created a successful show was unlikely. He made one show after it that really didn't do very well. And anyway, Mace Newfield was going to get all his money, yeah. so the hell with it. So he moved to Fisher Island, and 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 lives there with 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 Sharon Gless. And uh, and 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 there they are. Anyway, so, and you know what he probably is doing right now? He's probably sitting, listening to this in his X chair. Sure, because he at least like that without an X chair. Ford an X chair, can and you know he's uh, he's a man of a certain uh, age, and probably he's got back problems, and so that uh, dynamic variable lumbar you get from the X chair just makes your back it suits and fits your back and makes it more comfortable to sit in that chair than any other maybe he's a little hot down there maybe he's a little cold down there and uh in, uh, unreasonably cold in on fisher island and so he uses the lmx temperature technology to warm up the chair or in the summer to cool down the chair so that it makes it more comfortable high performance quality engineering these are some of the reasons barney rosenzweig if he has an x chair loves his x chair and uh and probably can't wait to get to work so 
take my advice. Try the X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Go to xchairglop.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, G-L-O-P.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchairglop.com, and we thank X chair for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So, John, um, uh, when you a couple things. One, I feel like I'm the ombudsman. Uh, when you said that the that he might feel a little hot down there. I thought you were going to do a little cross promotion with the miraculous breakthrough technology of the Tommy John hammock, which also prevents that. Um, uh, but two, you said, and I know you were just sort of being glib when you said national lampoon said, you know, we invented this word. You have to pay us, blah, 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 blah. And for a split second, I was like, wait a second, did national lampoon actually invent the word lampoon. So I looked up its etymology. Um, and of course, they didn't invent the word. They just popularized this sort of, you know, word and all that kind of stuff and invested their brand in it. But Rob, since you are the uh, resident uh, Francophile here, do you know the root of uh, uh, Lampoon? No, I do not. So um, it comes from the French Lampon, a word sure, of sure. unknown origin said by French etymologists to be from which means let us drink which is said to have been a popular refrain (laughs) for scurrilous songs in which case it would be originally a drinking song french lampons is from lamper to drink or guzzle a nasalized form of lapair to lap from the germanic source so basically it was like a it was a mocking french drinking song that where you made fun of people and that's where it comes from. <laughs> so they should have had to pay. That they should have had to pay Maurice Chevalier the half of the monies <laughs> for the National Lampoon. So suddenly, Maurice Chevalier <laughs> is Mexican. Uh, <laughs> no, that was Dick. That was my Dick Van Dyke. Oh, that was my, oh yeah. Okay. Speaking of Dick Van Dyke, there is a video on YouTube. <laughs> Literally, has Dyke not been said anything at the age of ninety-six. It's pretty. It's kind of startling. His wife, who is like 40 years younger than he, sings a kind of jazz song, and then he gets up and kind of dances with her. He's 96 years old, and he sings and he dances. It is kind of awe-inspiring if you want to go to YouTube and 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 see it. Like uh, speaking, uh, we should all be we should all be in that kind of condition at the age of 96. Speaking of nice guys, the world's nicest person. Dick Van Dyke. Unbelievably. Really? I mean, famously nice. Famously great guy. And I remember I was shooting something on the beach once in, in, in Venice. And uh, I'm sort of sitting there. It's like a little, there's usually a little tent you can sit so you could, so that you could watch the monitors in, in the sun. And it's hard to see the monitors. So they put a little tent up. So I'm sitting in the in what they call video village, right? And I'm sitting in my video, video village, kind of waiting for something. And, I'm, and they're going to play something back because it's like kind of far away. And we can't really hear it. So we're going to play it back and make sure we got the shot. And then there's suddenly there's a person behind me. And he and, the, and then we watch the thing. He goes, oh, this is this is really funny. And I turn and it's Dick Van Dyke. And like, like a windbreaker and he's wearing like makeup and i thought oh dick van dyke is like walking around in full makeup just to see if he could ever but no he was shooting a scene from his show at the time called diagnosis murder and they had a little <laughs> video village like like uh 200 yards down the beach that they were shooting oh. you know facing the other way and he was just kind of wandering around on a break and he saw he just kind of came up and watched him 
we, we, I think we talked for like 30 minutes or something, just about just random stuff. And it, it just like, it was the, it was a crazy Hollywood moment. Cause like Dick, the Dick Van Dyke show is, I mean, an act, I mean, just an incredibly brilliant genius it's show yeah. that almost every episode is not just funny, but true in a way mm-hmm. that's really powerful. And Dick Van Dyke show, if you write, television comedy or even comedy in general is the thing to steal from mm. it's always you know, the thing to always go to dick van dyke steal a dick van dyke show you can't steal a lucy lucy was fine but you can't steal lucy you can't steal a jackie gleason you could uh, steal. the flintstones stole a lot no but you can't that's right well that's yeah, different i mean you, if you're writing something new you, can you can't really it. like it's, <laughs> yeah. You, yeah 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 yeah, you can't steal from you can't use any of that material as and call it your own but i'm telling you dick van dyke show treasure trove yeah. You know, there was this moment like 10 years, my, my wife, uh, my wife is an agent. And there was this moment 10 or 12 years ago, Rob is somebody having run shows that, uh, you know, has to read, had to read all these unsolicited scripts, which are called, you know, spec scripts, uh, efforts by writers to get attention so they can get staffed, get jobs on, on continuing, you know, sitcoms and, and programs. And there was this moment when some young writer had the genius idea of writing specs yeah, based on fifty-year-old shows instead of right. what ordinary people ordinarily people do is they would write a How I Met Your Mother or a Young Sheldon or you know a, a Goldbergs or whatever is on the air and show that they could write in that voice. And somebody wrote like these content. Some some genius sat down and wrote like a Mary Tyler Moore show as though it were today. Or today. did, did a, I tell you that one? Did I? No, uh, did, no. Uh, Ayala told me. Why? Okay, my wife told me because I hired somebody uh-huh. who wrote. Uh-huh an updated Dick Van Dyke show. And and there was a Mary Tyler Moore. It was it was yeah. like a thing. Suddenly everyone heard, man, you should do this. Like, why are you writing a spec that your specs never going to get produced anyway? And write also no one's seen the show. The show a, there are 50,000 yeah. shows on the air. No yeah. one write knows. a spec based on a really great show that and everybody show that knows right in that voice. And you you might actually. I and think so it worked I, in your case. And it was I like I read thing the fir- in one moment. Yeah, it was like this early 90s. I think I read the first one and it was an updated Dick Van Dyke show that had one incredible and it was a uh, richie was coming back from college right so richie was, or maybe it's with his new wife so uh-huh. like, they were old right uh and but the show was still on the alan brady show was still on and it, it was it was uh um buddy and sally and dick and they were in the writer's room trying to come up with funny uh after the summer parodies of big summer movies <laughs> and it was so they did a few things oh i know i know and and uh you know and Buddy says, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. We could make fun of all the toy tie-ins. All the movies have toy tie-ins. Like in the movie, JFK had just come back. It's like JFK. It's like a JFK piggy bank. You put a quarter on the back of the limousine and Jackie <laughs> comes up and scoops it into the. And I remember reading it and putting uh-huh. the, the script down and saying, OK, I'm going to hire that guy. That's fantastic. You know what else is fantastic? Express VPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine. But what if you suddenly get into a horrible accident and there's nothing in your kit to help you stop the bleeding? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network at all those public places we jump online, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, and more. It doesn't take a genius with much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart kid could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers make good money selling your personal info on the dark web. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet and keeps those dastardly hackers out. 
It's so secure that even a hacker with a supercomputer would be stuck waiting over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. And with all that security, you'll be shocked at how easy it is to use. Just fire up the app and click one button for protection, and it works on all your devices, allowing you to stay secure even on the go. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash glop. That's E-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash glop, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash glop, and we thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring the glop podcast i got a movie recommendation for everybody let me hear it okay it's a norwegian movie Uh, Uh, now it's not on streaming yet it's called the worst person in the world uh and okay i'm in a director named uh, joachim trier and it is it is kind of like uh an annie hall uh for 2022 it's about a, a somewhat aimless young woman living in oslo who can't decide on a career and her romantic adventures and and misadventures and it is fantastically good and uh it was nominated for best foreign film and best screenplay uh very deservedly if it comes anywhere near your town or in an art house near your town uh this is a movie to look up the worst person in the world so is it is it up for um so it's up for an oscar right it's up for two oscars yeah i I gotta tell you i mean i don't know what's going on in new york but there are commercials for it on my cable system particularly like on msnbc mm-hmm. constantly uh-huh i mean well because it's it's a really you know i mean for some of us we've been waiting a couple of years to see a movie like this like it's been a long time since there's just been a kind of you know a sharp urban character study of of you know uh highly pretentious you know sophisticated and also pretentious people who deserve to get taken down a few pegs but are nonetheless viewed somewhat sympathetically um it's 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 really uh really fantastic have either of you guys have anything to recommend i also liked reacher on on amazon well, people i like which, that too yeah which really does correct for the ridiculous midget reacher played by if you ever read the reacher books when tom cruise made the two movies about reacher the whole point about reacher is he's six foot six he weighs 250 pounds and he's like an avenging angel there was tom cruise beating up rednecks and yahoos in a parking lot you know by stomping on their feet and then you know and then kicking them in the shins um i will say that the first reacher movie is actually just a pretty good movie i mean it's okay yeah you know if you hadn't read the books and you don't feel violent true true um um, I was duped somewhat into seeing um, Death on the Nile. Oh yeah, and you know there were entertaining parts for, of it, but I was um, I'm thinking about ranting about this on my own podcast. But like, it's so I have a thing. Like, if you're going to be a murder mystery, right? Particularly like a Poirot murder mystery, the whole point of these things is to make you pay minute attention. Right. To everything that's going on because right. you want to catch oh that was a red herring and all that kind of stuff and the closer attention you spend to this movie the more it suffers um <laughs> it, it does not if, uh-huh. if you just let it wash over you um it's one thing but if you actually pay close attention first of all among other things that you'll discover is that in 1930s egypt no one sweat like apparently the desert wasn't hot in the 1930s. Oh no, it was a dry wear, heat. That's why you can wear three piece <laughs> suits. Dry heat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and there's a lot of other stuff, but uh, it, it looks interesting. They give up. They we finally have the 
um, the backstory to Poirot's mustache that apparently everyone wanted to have. That makes no sense. Hey, if you hey, hey. See the movie. Um, but uh, looks like so, Colonel Sanders, though, right? Is that the, the backstory. Uh, the original Death on the Nile of Peter Ustinov was bad. So I think the book, but was it wasn't bad. bad it, wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was, it was just watchable. It was cheesy and fun. It was like it was yeah, a star thing. It was watchable, right? If, I if liked that's it. the standard, I, then I think yeah. this kind of quality. I mean, I like the most recent, the the one that preceded this, the Kenneth Brown made as Poirot, yeah. the murder on the Orient Express, which you I didn't felt think it was, was a little better. too much, a little too emotional. Like, come on. Yeah, but I kind of, I kind of enjoyed it, and it, but it reminded me of the worst movie going, one of the worst movie going moments of my life. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but God knows when. So I'm standing at the Baronet Coronet online at the Baronet Coronet movie theater on Christmas Day, 1974, something like that, for an hour with my family to go see Murder on the Orient Express, which had just opened that day. And we're like halfway down the block when people stood on lines to wait to get into a movie in the cold. And and uh, and uh, the uh, side door of the theater, we were standing right by the side door of the theater when the movie let out. And, you know, people come out the side door on 59th Street. You get going on Third Avenue. And so people come out of the theater. It's the first day. And these guys run out of the theater and they look at us and they look at everybody and they start walking down the line going, everybody did it. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. (laughs) (laughs) It was so awful. It was so it was like one of just like a like a like just a terrible moment, you know, that that makes me appreciate the whole world of people saying, oh, should I? Yeah, I don't want to spoil this for you because spoiler alert. Yeah, we've been, already been online oh for an God. hour. You know, I when I was 12, 11 or 12, 11, maybe um, one of my maybe 13 or 14. Right? One of my classmates, his father was a musician. This is in Northern California. And he um uh, was in a in the music department at Lu- Lucasfilm, and he was he scored Empire Strikes Back. He was part oh, wow. of the score of Empire Strikes Back, the second movie. Uh oh! And he uh, came home and he w- didn't watch the movies. wasn't into the movies. Didn't care about the movies. He's a musician. I don't care. It's like I mean, it's a gig. I'm I'm a, I'm playing. And he says over dinner, apparently goes, oh, you know, it's weird. Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad. Because, of course, he's seen the movie ah. many times, right? And he's helped score that scene. And so this kid comes into to school the next day. He goes, you want to know something? It's really good. He's going to freak you out. You wanna, yeah, I want to. No, I don't. Yeah, yeah. It's about Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next one. Yeah, I want to know. No, I don't. Yeah, I do. Yeah, don't, tell, no, don't tell, tell me. Tell me. Don't tell me. Tell me. Yeah. Don't. He goes, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad. <gasps> it ruined the movie. I mean, it didn't really ruin the movie. I liked the movie. but But it was like, oh. And, and that and you really felt leaving that theater, there was a line of people. You could ruin it. Yeah. Yeah. So when um, I was five years old, let me just quickly tell the mm-hmm. story because it's burning a hole in me. When I was five years old, uh, my sister, uh, I, uh, my sister was uh, ten, my oldest sister, who is unfortunately no longer with us, was 10 years older than I. And my parents decided to throw her a 16th, a surprise 16th birthday party. And we we're going to have a surprise 16th birthday party for her. And I was so excited. I was so, it was the most exciting thing that ever happened. And I was just beyond myself with excitement. And then like the day before the party, I said, Rachel, we're having a surprise party for you. Oh, and then when I realized what I had done and I, I I said, can I, 
I want to take it back. You know, can I take yeah. it back? And my mother very, you know, I was sobbing and my mother was like, well, you told her there's no way now she knows there's nothing we can do about it. And she, I was like, no, I, I don't, I, di- I don't want to have done it. I don't want to have <laughs> wow. done it. Can, can, can we undo it? Anyway, we said, we said that was a joke form we would use where you, the guy coming into the boss, you know, the boss summons the guy in for a meeting and the, 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 the employee knows he's going to get fired. That's what this meeting's about. And he comes in uh, and the boss says, let me, t- I got something to tell you. And the, and the, and the employee says, I'll stop you right there. Cause you're the worst boss ever. I want you to know how much I hate you and hate this job, but I hate this place. And you don't have the, you don't have, I have more talent in my little finger than you have. I could run this company uh, 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 with one eye closed better than you could run because you, you're, you, the way you treat people and the way you manipulate people and the way you abuse people is absolutely reprehensible. And then the boss says, I'm sorry to hear you say that because I was going to give you a raise and a promotion. And then the employee <laughs> says, you didn't let me finish. You have to be tough <laughs> because that's what the modern workplace demands. And yes, and like yes, you're going to break a few eggs. Of course, you're going to break a few eggs, but you're making this wonderful omelet. And I, I graciously yeah. thank you, sir. Yeah. So uh, on the spoiler thing, I got into a fight about this a couple of times on Twitter over the years. Um, I believe in protecting people from spoilers while the movie's still in the theater and maybe a little yeah. while after. Right. But like at some point when something becomes part of popular culture, right, where it becomes part of America, like I don't yeah. feel any guilt talking about Darth Vader yeah, being of course. Right? Yeah, right. I someone got really mad at me about like tweeting something about the end of some movie that was like 30 years old <laughs> and I went on a rant about it. I was like oh yeah well yeah. guess what Rosebud is the sled and I went into all what? Yeah. And, and people yeah. got really mad they think that like you should protect the endings of things that are you know 50 75 years old and and I, it's weird but some people really believe it yeah so uh, okay, so we got worst person in the world. We got Reacher. Anybody else got anything to recommend? Any uh, Jonah? You Jonah? I, now that you are, now I was going to say Citizen a, Kane, uh, but I guess I yeah. can't now. <laughs> I kind of like um, I'm and I'm embarrassed about it. I will admit it, but I like Peacemaker. I like Peacemaker um, too. I like Peacemaker. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little, it's a little, it gets a little tiresome. Like it's it's so yeah. over the top that it gets a little repetitive. But it's it's uh, that's on uh, on HBO Max. That's the. John John Cena is one terrific comic actor. That's all I have to say. As much he's as he's a, he's suck a, up to China and all that, and uh, he's terrible. He's terrible it. and disgusting. But 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 he is. Yeah. But he really for a for a mountain of a man, <laughs> yeah. He has a very light and amusing touch. Uh, Rob, you have anything to recommend? Yeah, I do. But not not on the old legacy media that you okay. you uh, the yes. old, old folks do. I think you should go on Instagram and search for Jacques Pepin Foundation. Jacques Pepin, the great chef uh, and, um, you know, PBS chef and best friend of Julia Child for years. Former uh, Howard Johnson's chef. Former Howard Johnson's chef. Uh, uh, cooked for De Gaulle in the Elysee Palace as a young man um, and came to this country, became an American, incredibly patriotic uh, and raised family here, had a family here, raised family, just lost his wife, sadly, um, um, earlier this year. He does Instagram and he cooks and he just makes like stuff, not like it's not for fancy. It's like vegetable stew, I think is what he did last week or like a sandwich. But it's all it's mesmerizing and fantastic. And he is incredibly, incredibly gentle and thoughtful and incredibly cheap, too. He's like a really thrifty chef. So it's kind of fun to watch him cook turkey necks. Um, And uh, that's my 
preferred content these days. Um, he did uh, on his PBS, one of his PBS shows, talking about being thrifty. I always remember how he was talking about how to make a certain dish with a mix of cheeses. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining how all you have to do, and it, like it was, it, it was really remarkable. I'm, I'm kind of a, a big squish and freaked out by mold, but he's just like, oh, you just cut the mold off and use the rest of the cheese. And right. he got some PA to bring like four or five old pieces of cheese with mold on them <laughs> so that yeah. he would then shave the mold off. And it was like, All right, these that's thrifty. Uh, um, and Rob, I, the, cheese. before the show ends, you asked, you said at the very beginning of the show that, that I might have a more pleasant euphemism than smelling someone's uh, dog smelling another dog's anal glands yeah um with our late departed cosmo the wonder dog who was basically the sheriff of our neighborhood we referred to that sort of behavior as checking another dog's credentials or paperwork oh that is so good (laughs) that's right that's yeah that's good that is that is so good i like it that's really good okay guys we will reconvene and hopefully (laughs) we will not have to be talking about the passing of uh of, of close friends and uh, and and yeah. great writers, but and the phrase meantime, "anal glands" is going to be up. Yeah, that's like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, we're, we're doubling down on anal <laughs> glands I, I and do, credentials. Uh, I do now. I'm not replaying in my mind all of those old uh, '30s and '40s and '50s movies where you're on a train in Middle Europe and it's in the middle of World War II or just before it, and uh, the 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 Gestapo comes down the train. Papers. I want to check your papers and just see if like. In my brain, the re- the redo of that scene is that the person, oh, okay, and they sort of get up and they bend over and they. Yeah, the, well, the all dog version of these <laughs> yeah. movies. That's <laughs> right, what right, it would there be. you go. <laughs> like, like Bugsy Malone, but with dogs. Cosmo <laughs> used to sit on the front porch and he had a sheriff collar, and dogs would be walked up and down the block, and he would run down, and he would check their papers, and then he would come back up, and it was no problem because he was a wonderful. Guy. And so we, that's what we call another a tribute to another another fallen friend. Exactly. Yes. Okay, well we will we will reconvene in a couple weeks. Ricochet. Join the conversation.